morning, everyone. My name is Will, one of the pastors here at New Line Press, and we are continuing along in a series looking at the book of Philippians, and we've entitled this series, The Joy in the Journey. And so if you have your Bibles, or if you want to simply look up on the screen, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of his word. We're going to take a, a look at the final verses of chapter 1. So I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 1, starting with verse 27 to the end of the chapter, verse 30. This is God's word for you. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign on them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And this is God's word. You can take your seats at this time. Well, if you were here with us uh, last week, we looked at uh, the beginning and the middle sections of chapter 1, where Paul is writing this letter talking about joy in the Christian life. And we've emphasized and highlighted the fact that he's writing this from the perspective of being a prisoner in the Roman uh, government. And he's talking about this life of being transformed in the gospel of Jesus so that even though your circumstances are dark and heavy, you can still be full of joy, not by discounting suffering or the reality of the world around you, but to realize that ultimately your joy and your contentment comes from inside out. And we're looking at the life of Paul, and at the end of chapter 1, what Paul wants to do with his life and letter is to move from talking about being joyful as a person to having joy as a church. I mean, Paul, his real mantra was actually verse 21, which we tried to expand upon last week, for to, me, it, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But in this passage this morning, what Paul does is he moves from himself to the church. And in verse 27, he opens with saying, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And only shows that this is emphatic. Your one thing in life is unwavering expectation for you and me as a church. Or as Karl Barth has once said, it's paraphrased, just one thing, just one thing I want to tell you. Let your, let your life show that Jesus is worthy. Just one thing. And one commentator said that Karl Barth is talking about just one thing like lifting a finger as a pastoral gentle warning. Just one thing. And even from the beginning, Paul moves from the center of gravity of his life, from self-centric living to Christ-centric living, and that the universe doesn't revolve around us, but he's showing us today that the universe revolves around Jesus. And he's saying the worthiness of your life, the goal of your life, the value of your life, isn't something that comes innately within yourself, but really from a person named Jesus given to you, who has united you to himself. Because friends, we all want lives that are significant, meaningful, and purposeful, authentic even. And what Paul is saying, that authentic life comes together in community as you learn to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this speaks directly not into our culture, but even in the Roman Philippian culture in the letter here today, because the Roman culture had all kinds of different achievements and social classes, accomplishments, different frames of thinking, 
different paradigms of assessing value. And Paul understands this, and he gets it, but he's saying, for you and me as a church, the way we assess value, the way we determine our lives and to determine our self-worth is not going to be through achievements and accomplishments, but by looking at the worthiness of Jesus for you and me. And so I want to talk about this in the way that Paul does. There are three points to living this worthy life, three metaphors or two metaphors in one application. First, he says, if you want to live a worthy life, you have to live as a citizen of heaven. Secondly, he says, a worthy life means that you live as a soldier for Jesus. And then thirdly, he's going to give you this sort of balance to help you understand, well, you could have this balance of not being scared of life, but also not being so edgy and annoyed by the people that you're doing life with. And so let's look at this together. First, a citizen of God, a soldier for Jesus, and then a balance in this Christian life. That's how you live a worthy life. So let's look at citizenship. It's hard to see there. The word is not written in the ESV translation, but it's right there in verse 27. When it says, let your manner of life be, that's actually one word in the Greek. Let your, life, let your manner of life be is really one word, which is in the core of it, citizen. Because Paul normally uses this word called walk. It says, you know, when he's describing the Christian life, he says, you walk from point A to point B. No, let walk in this way, walk in this manner. But now Paul shifts this a little bit, and he says, if you want to live a life that's worthy of Jesus, you have to be a citizen. That's where we get the word polis, where in English, that word for citizen, polis, is where we derive the word politics or police, because it's basically saying what, what polices your conduct. It's saying what are the politics that you use to navigate your life. And it really, that word means in, the, in its core, to behave in a way that enhances the reputation of your city. That's citizenship. That's what he means when he says, let your life, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your politics show that it's worthy of Jesus. Let, let the world know that what polices your heart, what polices your, your morality and your thoughts and your conduct and relationships is going to be the worthiness of Jesus. So in some sense, he's saying, let your citizenship, let your politics, let your policing reflect your city. See, friends, citizenship, as I kind of expound upon this, was a really big deal back there and then in the days of, Philippian, of the Philippian church. Because if you remember, Philippi was a Roman city. It was citizenship in the Roman culture and for Philippi, was for the privileged class. It was everything that an average person strived for. I want to be a Roman citizen. It was when you really made it. It's when you really accomplished something. It's when you established yourself and you were successful. It was only for the privileged class of the city's leading families. And for most people under Roman's government, Rome's government, it included the citizenship of its national city was essentially out of reach for the common man. It was only for the upper class. But it was something that everyone strived for, desired, wished they could have. Because if you had Roman citizenship, it was like a stamp of approval. It was an insignia that's saying, hey, you're someone special. It's someone that is saying that you are part, you are, you are somebody. You are, you, have, you are somebody that is looked up to and admired and respected. You know, it came with privileges too, like a lot of you know, people in power in the upper social class. There's privilege there. So for Roman citizens, they had tax privileges because they had tax breaks. You know, in some ways, it's not any different from today. Also, if you're a Roman citizen, you had access to a better legal system. There was a due process for Roman citizens that other people didn't have. 
So it's, it's kind of sounds very similar to today. But Paul is speaking into that, and he's saying, I get it. You want Roman citizenship. It means you belong, you have power, you have connections, you have wealth. But he's saying, realize as a Christian, your ultimate citizenship is not in Rome or Philippi, but it's in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul wants you and I to understand. This one, one commentator, Gordon Fee, says it this way. As Philippi was a colony of Rome, the church is a colony of heaven. Because he's saying your identity, your citizenship, is not in Rome or Philippi, but in the heavenly city of Jesus. This one commentator, this one scholar, Marcus Bulkmuel, he says it this way about citizen in heaven. He says, that's a counter-citizenship whose capital and seat of power are not earthly but heavenly, whose guarantor is not Nero, but Christ. Because you see, friends, everyone's searching for citizenship to belong to something greater than yourself. Everyone's searching for value. Everyone's searching for a stamp of approval. Everybody in your own way wants some sort of citizenship. And so when I stretch this application, this is how I want to apply it today. That in every stage of life, in all of life, there's some sort of membership, some sort of citizenship that you strive for, that you think will give you joy and happiness. That's why in the bigger picture, there are secret societies, elite organizations, clubs and associations, even cliques. In softer forms, citizenship and this belonging to a group which drives your desires and your, your efforts and your aspirations among some people, sort of what school did you get into? Where did you graduate? What town do you live in? Who do you hang out with? Who's your in-crowd? Who are you close with? Who do you get connected with at church or out there in the world, in the PTA, or really the managing director at your firm, or the partner at your law practice? Because depending on your answers, you sort of feel secure and confident when you get that citizenship in different spheres of life, but you'll feel insecure and desperate when you feel ostracized and rejected from the inner circle. You may feel content and fulfilled, or you may feel empty or frustrated. You may feel like a somebody when you're accepted and you have been naturalized in these elite groups, or you may feel like a nobody if you feel sort of on the outskirts and not in the room when decisions are being made. Paul is saying he gets it. He's saying, of course, citizenship in Rome is good, but he's saying, don't realize and don't forget, don't you forget and ever, ever forget that your ultimate citizenship, your belonging, is to the greatest club, clique, society, association that you can ever imagine, the greatest kingdom and nation called heaven. And that should drive everything so that makes your skin a little bit thicker, but your heart a little bit more tender. That's why Paul is saying it's so important, because in the gospel, Paul speaks into this. We have been made citizens of heaven because of Jesus. But did you know that Jesus, in the world of the Roman government, was a nobody? But Jesus, in the big picture of the kingdom, was a somebody. He was a somebody of somebodies who came down to make a nobody like us, a somebody. Does that make sense? In other words, Jesus, who was a somebody, he was a somebody of somebodies. He was the man who became a nobody to make nobodies like us a somebody in his kingdom. He was the ultimate insider who became an outsider to make outsiders like you and me ultimate insiders in the kingdom. You know, if I could use a noun like a verb, Jesus somebodied the nobodiness of our lives. He was the king of all citizens who became exiled and ostracized to naturalize all of us in his death and resurrection to give us citizenship in his kingdom. To have that belonging, to have that community, that life. 
to be naturalized in the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, based on that, based on that reality, that truth of citizenship that polices your conduct, based on that, the politics that should, that should drive and dictate and saturate your life, he's saying live in a manner worthy of that. Now, worthy, when you ask that question, worthiness is basically just asking, what is your value? Are you living in a way to build your own value, or are you living in a way that order reflects the value of Jesus for you? Live in a manner worthy of that value, of, of, that, of, that, of that power, of that glory, of that precious relationship you have with Jesus. And you're thinking, well, what does that look like? How do you live in a manner worthy of that? Well, there's a couple examples throughout the New Testament. Let me just give you three. I'm just going to read this. It colors in the picture to say this is how you could live as a citizen of God, as a, in a manner worthy of the life of Jesus. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul writes this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, all with humility and gentleness, patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Or let's look at this letter called Titus in chapter 3, verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. They devote to things of good works that are helpful for other people around them. And last but not least, and this is just peppering some examples, and it's very own letter, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 to 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I mean, it's all-encompassing. He says all these, it's like whatever is honorable, whatever actually is about justice, whatever is pure and lovey, lovely, whatever is commendable, and if, if there's anything excellent, he says two things. Think about all those things, and then he says, don't just think about it, but practice it. Let your life know it's not about what you know only, but it's about what you do and how you live. And he said, let that life be the fragrant aroma that shows that you are a citizen of heaven, that, you are, that you're showing your life to say, what counts in my life is the worthiness of Jesus and not about who I am. And that's the first thing to consider. You live like a citizen. But secondly, look at, let's look at the soldier. Paul brings into view this military imagery and this soldier idea, this metaphor in verses 27 to 28, he says, standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side, and not frightened by your opponents. In other words, he says, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is that you live like a soldier. You live like an infantry of heaven, in unity, side by side, and in courage, because you're not scared of the world. That's what Paul is saying. By the way, as a pastoral, as a counseling point, one of the things that's encouraging about this is that the very fact Paul says you don't have to be scared tells us that God sees you where you are and knows that you're scared. And it's the only religion that empathizes in that way, just as a subtle point. The fact that Paul says God sees you and says don't be scared, don't be afraid, means that he realizes this world is scary and afraid and, and a fearful world and he sees that you're scared. And it's the only God of the universe, this transcendent God that created the universe but cares about the experiences of your life. You know, it's a wonderful truth that gives us comfort. But he says, live as a soldier, side by side, and not being afraid. 
Paul focuses emphatically on unity in verse 27. One spirit with one mind, striving side by side. The Holy Spirit created this unity. The Holy Spirit characterizes this unity. It's spirit-empowered. It's protected by the Holy Spirit. This one scholar, Dennis Johnson, said, God's spirit is the powerful protector in whom Christ's soldiers stand strong. And the spirit is the divine guardian of our soul and mind. So he's emphasizing side-by-sideness, emphasizing this unity, this Holy Spirit unity side-by-side of one mind, thinking the same, moving the same, but doing it collectively. See, the root word there for striving side-by-side sometimes refers to an athletic competition. Did you realize the birth of the Olympics was just south of Philippi in this city called Achaia? So Paul may be appealing to that context and knows, okay, the birthplace of the Olympics, they're all about competition, athletics. So he's really contextualizing and using these sort of athletic metaphors, you know, this military metaphor that came out of the athletics of the Olympics. Because in ancient Greek, athletic competition developed from military combat and training. That's why in the Olympics, he had events like the javelin and the hammer and the discus and even wrestling because military tactics really came out of the Olympics and sporting tactics. And Paul paints a really clear picture and says, okay, there's military tactics, there's mortal combat that came out of the Olympics, but he's using that in the Christian perspective and say, you guys are all Olympians for Jesus, that you are all a soldier for Christ. One mind, one gospel, one spirit, side by side. Now, the picture, if you've ever seen movies or documentaries, is like the Navy SEALs walking into the beach during their training, linked arm by arm into the coldest water that they've ever experienced. Because they say, actually, the number one reason that Navy SEALs fall out of training is because of the temperature of the water, not necessarily fatigue. Or maybe you've seen the movie 300 that's based on some sort of history about the 300 Spartans, and that they create this phalanx and that they had side by side their shields next to each other one dependent upon the other, creating a perfect shield in unity. And that's the imagery of Jesus. That's the imagery of his church. The Olympians of Jesus Christ, the soldiers of Jesus and his kingdom. And Paul is saying, church, spiritually speaking, you do the same, stay together, keep united, put your personal agenda aside, and look at what the agenda of Jesus is for you in the wider kingdom, given to you in Matthew 28. Now, here at this church, our version of Matthew 28 is really the vision that we pray everyone would be joined and excited and empowered, coming side by side, one another, for our vision to impact Orange County, to make disciples who are gospel-centered, compassionate, and missions-minded. And that's all that we're about at this church, is to make disciples that look exactly like that, reformed, gospel-centric, compassionate and empathetic, other-centered and missions-minded. In the army of New Life Prez, the Olympians of New Life Prez are called to be side-by-side as we move forward every year trying to make disciples and impacting the world by loving and discipling people. Side-by-side. Now, before we go to our third point, I want to talk and really apply this idea of side-by-side. And... No, it implies a lot of things. You know, first, side-by-side side means that you're facing the same direction with the same purpose and vision to impact Orange County. But this side-by-side side imagery has a lot of application. If you're side-by-side, side, that means you're in community with one another. That means you are dependent upon the person to the left and the right of you. 
you are connected with one another. An African proverb goes like this. It can't really find out who really said this, but it says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that's exactly what I think Paul is trying to say. It's made possible in the gospel of Jesus. So this is what essentially side-by-side may mean if I try to make it a little bit more practical. Side-by-side. If you're side-by-side, it means that true empathy is not just feeling sorry for someone. Side-by-side means that you're entering into their pain and showing them the love and compassion of Jesus. Side-by-side. Side-by-side means that our presence and our support can often be more powerful than our advice or our solutions. Side-by-side means that we're called to bear one another's burdens, to share in the joys and the pains and sorrows around us, and to be a tangible expression of God's love, because side-by-side means that we are visible and we're linked together in this life. Side-by-side means walking together side-by-side, embracing the messiness of life and the brokenness of those we journey with, knowing that God could bring beauty out of the ashes of life. Side-by-side means when someone is hurting, sometimes the most meaningful thing we can do is to simply be there, reminding them that they aren't alone in this world and that God's presence is shown through God's people side-by-side. It may also mean that the power and presence of God for your suffering and your hurting can come through people who are next to you, left and right, listening, providing a safe space for others to process their pain and to find healing. That's what it means to be side by side. The question is this, are we side by side in the gospel of Jesus that's created by the Holy Spirit in community, side by side, depending on one another, with one common mind, pursuing a vision that we believe God has given this church? That's what we're calling everyone to Christ and calling everyone to serve. Because you may be called to Christ, but if you're not called to serve, you're not serving, that you're not really side by side. And it doesn't mean you have to join a committee. It doesn't mean that you could serve organically. A lot of you serve behind the scenes, and that's wonderful. We thank you, but we're calling you to come side by side in this broken world with broken people, with a broken leadership and a broken pastor. But we have a perfect, unbroken Savior in Jesus, who is our general, our soldier, our commander. He's saying, you guys are the Olympians of New Life Press. You guys are the soldiers of God's kingdom. Come side by side on this phalanx of the Holy Spirit so that we can pursue the vision that God has given us. And that's what it means to live a life worthy live life worthy of Jesus, that you're first a citizen, but secondly, a soldier. And this leads us to our third point, sort of an application. He gives you a balance. And we're going to talk about suffering a little bit. Let me talk about this balance, and then I'm going to end on suffering because it's related. When Paul says in Philippians chapter 128, I don't want you to be frightened in anything by your opponents, and then he goes right into verse 29 to 30, he's basically saying this, I don't want you to be scared. And then verse 29 and 30 show you how you cannot be scared. Does that make sense? 28, don't be afraid. And he shows you in verses 29 to 30, this is how I'm going to help you to not be afraid. It's designed to provide that encouragement in verses 29 to 30. So 29 says this, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So here's Paul's gospel logic. Don't be afraid. You know why you don't have to be afraid? Because I'm going to give you grace. There's two things. I'm going to give you faith. I'm going to give you suffering. Isn't that weird? Don't be afraid because I'm going to give you suffering. Let's talk about this a little bit. Dennis Johnson, his commentary in Philippians, 
he says this is really a gospel balance because what Paul gives in verse 29, faith and suffering, he says gives us a balance in the gospel ultimately, that in the gospel Jesus died for you. He separated you from this evil world. He set, he set you apart to be holy. And he gives you these promises to say, if you persevere by my strength, there's these promises of holiness and kingdom and reconciliation and justification and sanctification and community. No more tears or pain. And he says, you get a taste of it now, but you'll have it in its full later. And he says, I've given you Jesus. And that's why he says, in Jesus, there are two things. You're going to have the resources of the gospel, and then in the gospel, you're going to suffer. And this is why Dennis Johnson says that it's a balance. Because if you truly understand the hope that's been given to you, if you understand your identity in Jesus, that you're united to him, if you understand that really in the gospel you've been forgiven and clean and you're white as snow and you're growing and you're becoming holier and more like Jesus, more loving and empathetic, he says there's two things. One, you'll be a little bit less scared of this world because you have a future hope, something that death can never take away. The sting has been neutralized. But it also said reason there's a balance is because on the one hand, you're not just going to be afraid, but on the other hand, you'll be a little bit less edgy, a little bit less annoyed, a little bit more loving towards the people in this room. Because your confidence in your identity is not in your achievements, but in Jesus. And when your confidence is in, not in your achievements, but in Christ, and what Jesus' achievements for you, that makes you a lot more tender in your heart, but a lot more thick-skinned. Because if your identity is in Jesus, that no one ever takes away. Your identity is in him. Your worth is in him. Your, your sense of purpose is in him. That makes you have this really nice balance that only Christianity can give you. Because it makes you a little bit less scared because you know that your eternal life is secure but it also makes you a little bit less edgy, a little bit less annoyed with people because you know you could be more loving, empathetic, and that your identity is not in their approval of people and not the comparison of each other. That's why this really nice balance. You know, Dennis Johnson's commentary on this one particular passage, he ends by quoting, um, I think, A Reason from God by the late Tim Keller, uh, which is weird to say that it's the late Tim Keller, but Tim Keller's past. I'm sort of paraphrasing this wonderful gospel balance that Dennis Johnson is trying to give to us. You know, Keller writes this. He says, in a paraphrase, when my own personal grasp of the gospel was very weak, my self-view swung wildly between two poles. When I was performing up to my standards in academic work and professional achievement and relationships, I felt very confident, but he didn't feel very humble. He felt very prideful when he was performing well. I was likely to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. When I was living up to the standards, when I was not living up to the standards and he was failing, he says, I felt humble, but I didn't feel very confident because I felt like a failure. I discovered, however, that the gospel contained the resources to build a unique identity. The Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility, but also a deep confidence. At the same time, it undermines both the swaggering and the sniveling. It, uh, it helps you to be balanced so you're not swaying on the one side to being very prideful but unsympathetic, or the other side where you feel like a failure but very humbled. It helps you to have deep humility but also deep confidence, and only the gospel can give you that. And that's what in verse 29 to 30 says, you know what, you don't have to be afraid. You have the gospel of grace. See, grace, that word is in there. He says when it gave you in that verse 29, that word gave is literally he graced you with this. Faith in Jesus and also suffering. So let's talk about suffering as we end this. We could talk about this after if there are questions about this, but I'm going to try to give my, my best 
like two-minute expression of why I think Christianity has the best understanding of suffering. Because this is one thing. No matter what religion, what worldview, what philosophy, there is one thing that every human being can agree upon, no matter, even if you work in a pluralistic worldview, every religion, every worldview, atheism, agnosticism, humanism, existentialism, whatever it may be for you, whatever religion it could be for you, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever it is, everyone can agree on this one part point about suffering. It's really bad. It's really bad. And we can all agree that suffering is bad and that we want to get rid of suffering. At least that's the one thing reaching across the aisle to different worldviews and religions. We could shake their hand and say, okay, we're going to defer on a lot of things, but let's shake each other's hands. Suffering is bad. No one wants it in this world. Now, what I think actually is that when you get into a humble, deep conversation about suffering, because God is telling us, I'm going to give you suffering because there's meaning behind that and there's a reason for this, I think Christianity offers we're always bumping up against mystery, but offers the most intellectually coherent and emotionally empathetic and the most honest reasons why they're suffering in this world, better than any other religion. So just a two-minute expression. For example, you know, Islam, they basically say suffering is a test, and it's a test of purification. But if you live like that, man, if you're getting tested and you're trying to strive, that just makes you hardened, makes you critical. There's no empathy in that. It's just a test for purification. Buddhism, with this Gautama Buddha, says suffering, it's real, it's part of this life, but it's caused by desires. So he's saying the key to get rid of suffering in this world is to rid yourself of desires. So if you start desiring money and pleasure and, and physical intimacy, then you could get rid of suffering. But we realize desires are really good. Jesus himself is the, most, the strongest person who has desires. He says, you know, it's a delight in the law of God because it'll bring you joy. He says, rejoice always again, I say rejoice. So Christianity says desires are actually really good, and that's part of what it means to be human. So you don't want to rid yourself of desires, and that's not going to work anyways, because you can still suffer. Hinduism has this idea of karma. We use that, and you know, we use this in our everyday language. None of us are Hindu, I think, but we say, you know, that's karma. You're just getting what you deserve. And the idea of Hinduism is that if you want to break yourself from suffering, you have to figure out a way to reach up to this higher attainment of living so you can break the cycle of birth, life, and death because it's always a cycle of suffering. And you've got to break that cycle by your own resources. And the only way you break that cycle is if you can reach this state of living called moksha. That's still man-centered. I don't know if I can do it. I don't want to be tested for purification. I don't want to rid myself of desires. I don't know if I can break this cycle, even if I believe in reincarnation. I can't do any of this. So at least in this one point, we say, no matter what view you have, every one of these views, this is what we could say, takes a ginormous amount of faith. So it's not just Christians that have faith. Everyone has faith. It's just a matter of what does the most honest understanding, adjudication, framing of the Christian faith. You know, even if it's not religion, just really quickly, we won't go through a handful of these, but one of them is just an understanding suffering is secularism. You know, we're a very secular world. We're a very secular church. I could be a very secular pastor. But secularism essentially says this, through human reason, ethics, progress, generally suffering is a natural part of our human existence, but it focuses on relieving suffering through human efforts, scientific advancement, social reform, empathy-driven actions. 
The focus is on proving the quality of life and promoting human flourishing. And by the way, Christianity has no problem with that. We're just saying it's done only in the gospel of Jesus. But secularism just falls on itself. Now, it's a little bit more philosophical, but they can't have a way to define what actually good ethics are. There's no moral framework, no moral grounding. So even secularism, they all defer on actually what is ethical, what is good. How do you define progress? There's no way to actually be intellectually robust because there's no way to adjudicate what is ethics and good and bad. What is progress? Who gets to decide that? But we get to figure all that out. We know what good ethics are, love God and love people. We know whose absolute moral authority is that. It's not going to be societies and different cultural groups. It'll be the God of the universe who has given us his word. You may not like our answer, but at least it's coherent and intellectually robust. So Christianity doesn't take more faith than any other religion. Christianity actually is intellectually more robust than secular humanism. But this is why I think it goes beyond this, if you're tracking with me just a little bit. I think Christianity and the gospel in understanding suffering allows us to be the most empathetic and loving Because when we know the love of God who gave us his son to die for us and take our place, that's the ultimate act of love and sacrifice. And if we get it, the penny drops and the gospel hits. And we've been recipients of that love and the truth of the gospel and the spirit really flourishes. Then we, from the inside out, are the most empathetic and the most loving and the most merciful. It is far more empathetic than any other religion. Because if we're just saying, like Islam, if you're saying you're getting tested because you've got to be, you're suffering because you're getting tested and you're going to see if you're going to pass or not, that's not a lot of room for empathy. They were saying for Buddhism, get rid of your desires. And there's no empathetic desires and emotions in the Buddhist worldview. But Christianity says it's all about empathy, gospel-driven and gospel-saturated, gospel-motivated. So it's much more empathetic, I think. Also, Christianity lets you to be much more vulnerable because if it's in this balance, it makes you be honest about yourself so you can be publicly free and be vulnerable and honest. Hey, I messed up. I'm just as broken as everyone else. You know, I have my own idols here. I have my own mental health issues. They can bring mental health out to the fore and freedom and security to say, I struggle with depression and I struggle with uh, bipolar and I struggle with OCD. And we embrace this because that does actually fit the Christian worldview because there's a hope that speaks into this, which comes from the Bible. But it makes us so much more vulnerable and honest about life. This is a big one, especially among millennials. Christian suffering in the gospel is the only one that has real meaning in suffering. We may not fully understand the reasons for why something happens, but we know that God allows suffering. We know that God, he'll use suffering. You know, we know that suffering generally, when you're holding onto an idol so tight, sometimes God will send suffering so that in suffering we let loose of that idol, and with an empty hand, all we have left to hold onto is Jesus, and he loves us so much, he says, I want you to hold onto Jesus more. Let go of that idol and hold on to Jesus. Our view says suffering has meaning because it makes you holy, more empathetic, softer, closer to God, changes and transforms you from the inside out. It connects you to a greater purpose because when you're suffering, it's saying, you know what? You're connected to the general and the commander of this world, Jesus Christ, who suffered first. So you have a greater purpose, a greater meaning, greater empathy. You can use it to help people and be more active, and that leads us to another point. Christianity and suffering does a greater job, I believe, of calling people to justice, calling people to action, because we're the only people in the gospel, not in a haughty way, but we should be the only people who are not hypocritical, but people who are marked by winsome empathy and courageous truth, because that's exactly what Jesus does. He was the most hardline person on theology, but the most empathetic and broke all the social barriers by hanging out with the prostitutes and tax collectors. 
We have to be strong on our doctrine and truth, but applied and engaged in a very winsome, empathetic way. And I think Christianity offers all of that. It gives us, I believe, the best understanding of suffering because we all know that it's bad. We all can reach across the aisle and shake a person's hand who doesn't believe what we believe, but we can agree we want suffering to stop. I just think the Christian worldview has a better perspective on suffering that empowers and gives meaning and makes us vulnerable and calls us to action in a way that no other religion does. And that's why I think that Paul says, you know what? Don't be afraid. I'm going to give you two things, grace you with two things. One, the gift of faith, and I'm going to give you suffering. You're thinking, that's a high promise. That's a big promise. But it's a promise fulfilled only in the gospel of Jesus for you and me. And many of us are suffering in this church in ways both seen and unseen. And I pray this gives a little bit of a glimmer of hope that the God who sees you where you are doesn't just have an answer for you, but perhaps more importantly, has a heart and empathy for you. And he's come down into this world in his son, Jesus, and he wants to walk alongside of you and say, don't give up, don't lose hope. I know it's hard. I see suffering. I know you're frightened. That's why I say don't be frightened. But his son, in his son Jesus, he's locking you in in his death and resurrection, his union with you. It says, yes, your faith will waver, your hope will, your hope will waver, but it won't be diminished because in my resurrection, I will secure everything that I promised for you. And in the meantime, I'm giving you the grace of faith, the grace of suffering, and you could do this in community, side by side. And the phalanx and the army and the Olympians of Jesus Christ. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, because you give us so much truth and power and encouragement. You care for us. You love us. I pray for each and every one of us as we look at Jesus, that he's all our worth. And because he's all our worth, that we would live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Help us to do this, Lord. Help us to be more united as soldiers side by side. Help us to find our identity and purpose, our politics and policing as a citizen. Help us to realize you have given us the gift of faith, but also as crazy as sounds, the gift of suffering in the broken world that desperately needs the message and love of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. We pray this in his name. Amen.